the gray man with um Brian Gosling, aka Cardboard Head, aka Mr. No Emotion, aka Mr. Didn't change his facial expression once in a two and a half hour movie. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode 446 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Black. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, what do we got on the docket for today? Oh, a little grab bag in the main topic, and then we'll head over to the sidebar. And we're going to be talking about Mac OS Ventura and a very long thread about all of the weird little UI bugs. And I think that'll lead us into a conversation about Mac OS, the platform in general. So a lot on the docket. Let's dive in. Marshall, we have some new very important pixels. Hey. Hey, it's nice to see these names every time, you know? Yeah. Like, what a gift. How lucky we are that every Seriously. couple weeks now we record and we just have this list of wonderful humans who have said, you know what? Now's the time. Mm-hmm. Now's the time. I'm I'm ready to, to join the fam, jump into that sweet hot tub <laughs> of design details. Very important pixels. So without further ado, huge shout outs to TJ Glotzner. Jeffrey Aigsi, Romy Brer, Kevin Turner, Adam Brace, George, Peng Zhang, Audrey Hope Diowen, Kuhn Van Niekirk, Simone Rom, and Pip Wynn. Wow, wow, hey. wow. I think you did pretty good on the pronunciation there, too. That's some <sighs> tough ones, but... I try my best. I try my best. All right. Well, welcome, everyone, to the fam. Hope welcome. You be sure to catch your first sidebar, uh, but, you know, I think... We're releasing the sidebars a little bit later these days, so you'll also have access to the whole backlog of sidebars. So Ooh. head to Patreon and start listening to that backlog. Backlog? Backlog. <laughs> I wondered if you can correct yourself. Backlog. Anyways, if you didn't know, we're a listener-supported show. That means that every week, people like the aforementioned Very Important Pixels join us on Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash design details, where for... Just a buck a month. It's just a buck a month. Just a doll hair a month, you get access to <laughs> bonus design details content. At this point, I think maybe over 100. It's over 9,000, pretty sure. <laughs> it's over 9,000. It's a lot. Hours upon hours of that sweet, sweet bonus content. And now an extra little nugget for you every other week when we release new design details episodes, you're going to get access to a bonus one called the sidebar. Sidebar, sidebar. So if you just can't get enough of our voices in your ears, (laughs) which is a weird thing to say, (laughs) you can go to patreon.com slash design details, support us for just a buck a month and start digging in to all that juicy content. (laughs) It's just a buck a month. Thanks to everyone who's uh, supporting the show. Yeah, just a buck a month. We'll see you on Patreon. Okay, Marshall, tiny bit of follow up. So last week we talked about the Lumina desk and we sort of critiqued the marketing page and sort of designed our dream desks in the mind's eye. Anyways, I actually emailed them (laughs) because, you know, I like filled out the form on their website and they respond. They're like, oh, we're so excited to have you on the wait list. Feel free to reach out to us anytime. And so I replied and I said, "Uh, this desk looks incredible. Can you just make an option without the screen? And someone, I I said it politely, but uh, someone responded and said, we will pass along your feedback. Thank you. But then, like a week later, I got another email. I think I'm just on their drip marketing campaign now. It said they had $5 million worth of pre-orders already, man. Five million bucks. Can you believe that? I don't know. That sounds like a lot. Well. 
it's all refundable, right? It's all refundable. How much was it? It was like $2,000, right? Yeah. Actually, I didn't click through. They sent a link where you could like pre-order, but I didn't click it because I'm like, no way. But yeah, I, sh- I should have looked at the price. Either way, five million bucks of pre-orders for what is essentially vapor hardware. Well, hold on. I just did a little bit of quick maths here, and uh, okay. it at two thousand dollars a desk. It's only twenty five hundred people, right? It's only twenty five hundred people. Yeah, so that's not you know you can get to five million pretty quick when you're charging two grand a piece. Yeah, fair point. Fair point. Anyways, thought that was some follow up. I'll be watching keenly to see if they make a, a screenless version. Anyways, main topic time. Let's get started. How about I read this one to you? We got a tweet. This came from Singyu Lam, who says, do you guys prefer a certain naming convention when naming Figma layers and components, like lower camel case, upper camel case, etc.? And (laughs) Marshall, we were discussing this before the show, and I'm like, I don't think this is a topic. And you were like, well, what do you prefer? Uh, And we both prefer different things. uh And then you said you had actual reasons for preferring things. I'm like, all right, God. (laughs) All right, let's figure out why Marshall prefers a certain case of structures. So that's this weird thing of having like reasoning for your opinions. I don't don't get it. And why? Yeah. Well, I want you to say which casing you prefer for your Figma layers and components, but then you have to defend it with some reasons. Like, why is one better than the other? Okay. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, I mean, all of this is, it's better for me. This works best for me. And I think as (laughs) with all things. There is subjectivity to this. uh, I mean, as with all things, the solution that works best for you is the best solution, right? Fair enough. So having said that, I prefer title case. Okay, why? Legibility, scannability, looking down the layer list, having the first letter be capitalized allows me to scan quickly and see that first letter and then use the shape of the word along with potentially a second word that also has a capital letter, use those kind of shapes of the words to scan quickly. And not just the words themselves, but the spaces between. And if you do something like camel case or all lowercase, it's it's harder to get those anchor points or it's harder to scan for those anchor points, you know? So yeah, for me, it's just totally. a scannability, legibility thing. And my eyes are drawn to those capital letters as anchor points. That's my reasoning. I wonder, there's got to be some science out there about scannability because in programming languages, there are different styles in different languages, right? Like, for example, JavaScript prefers lower camel case for variable names and and stuff. I think a lot of languages do lower camel case is kind of the default. A lot do, but then you end up in like Ruby land and Ruby prefers snake case which is bizarre. And then sometimes you have them like mixed and matched and you end up with like a bunch of weird casing and it sucks. Like languages do have preferences. Let's right? Maybe let's uh, define these because we're, we're naming a bunch. I never even heard of snake case. Snake case is all lowercase with underscores. All lowercase with, with underscores. Okay. Wait, there's also some, there's also something called kebab case. Is that with uh, uh, dashes? With, with just dashes, yeah. Hyphens, yeah. That makes sense. Kebab. Case. There's all also right. something called scream kebabs, which is all caps, all uppercase hyphenated. Dashes. It's good that you, <laughs> there is intuition to it, right? Yeah, no, no, that's good. It's good naming. I don't know that I'd want to look at that long term, but yeah. Okay. So actually I, I, I found the the correct names for, it's not upper and lower camel case. Uh, they're actually different things. Yeah, it's camel case. I think it's just the normal is lower camel case, right? Camel case, first letter is lowercase. Mm-hmm. And then there's no spaces, right? Each subsequent word has a capital letter. Yep. So you can right. tell the words apart by the capital letters, but the first letter of the word is never capitalized. That's right. The next one is Pascal case. And that's where it's the same as camel case, except the first word starts with an uppercase. 
Then there's snake case, where it's all lowercase, where spaces are replaced with underscores, and then kebab case, where spaces are replaced with dashes. I have never seen kebab case used ever in my life. And these are more like, I, I imagine these are more inch casing, I think, <gasps> for layer meaning. Yeah. Dude, I'm wrong. Okay. Kebab case is the default used in URLs. What am I thinking? Yeah, yeah. Or CSS. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. You're right. I, I lack imagination. Yeah, okay, so that's kebab case. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the ones that I'm most used to seeing are title case or sentence case. So title case is every word except for articles and prepositions under five letters are capitalized, right? So you're not capitalizing and or of. In, on. In, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, everything else is capitalized. There's also lowercase. Obviously, everything is lowercase, but with spaces and sentence case, which I believe is your favorite, yes? Correct. I like sentence case. Yeah. Where just the first letter is capitalized and every subsequent word has a lowercase beginning letter. Uh, and then there's all caps too, which is crazy. I, I worked with a guy in Chicago who would name all of his layers all caps, and that is chaos. Like, talk about inability to scan. Yeah, that's honestly the worst of all worlds. You don't even have like the landscape of the ascenders and descenders to yeah latch on to it's just yeah solid all the way across big blocks of words just blocky you know marshall this is gonna sound crazy okay but to me if i saw like layer names and component names named with title case i would think that that designer is really serious and if i saw file layer names and component names with sentence case i would think that designer's pretty chill Again, I know this sounds crazy. No, no, no. I see like your logic. The, the shape of the words like conveys a certain buttoned up seriousness, whereas I feel like sentence case like, you know what? I'm just here to like have a good time and make cool pixels. Well, you know, it's interesting. And maybe this is my rebellious side, Brian. But uh, <laughs> oh God, <laughs> the material guidelines call for a sentence casing for everything, like titles, mm. button labels, everything is, is sentence case. So uh, whereas on iOS, it's title case in most cases, like section headers and buttons That's and right. stuff like that. Yeah. So I like the look of that better. Probably it, it goes the other way of like, I like naming my layers that way, which is why I like title case on iOS better. Um, mm. but I have to do sentence case in my interfaces all day as adhering to guidelines. So I rebel in the layers panel, maybe. I don't know. Wow. You're the YouTube bad boy. I know. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, it is interesting though, the iOS versus Android thing, because actually in certain parts of an interface, I like actually, man, this is okay. Maybe there's something deeper going on here. I thought this would be a throwaway question, but on iOS, I like title case. But on the web, I prefer sentence case. And I feel like interfaces that use sentence case are more friendly and human feeling. And title case interfaces feel like more computery and ro robot-y, like impersonal, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Well, it's it's official looking, right? Like title case is looking. what you use for yeah. titles. That's why it's called title case. Whereas Sentence case is what you use for sentences when you talk to someone and communi communicate like a normal person, right? Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So maybe the answer here is we're going to split hairs here a little bit on like, well, what about your interface versus your file name or your, your layer names and stuff? Like, I, I suppose there's a world where those could be different, right? But in either way, in either side, like, 
seems as though this the decision is what's the tone that you want the consumers of that thing to have towards what you've made, whereas on one side the consumer would be your user and on the other side the consumer would be designers using whatever system it is that you've created. That makes sense. All right. Anyways, uh, see, there's there was more meat there than you thought there was, Brian. Yeah, there, there's some meat on them bones. All right, well, that was short, but we do have a second topic here. Yeah, and I will read this one to you. Okay, so this one comes from GitHub from Will Sue. Will says, so earlier this year, Google revealed a new Gmail design, and lately they began rolling out the new Gmail design to users as the default option. There are discussions around the internet. Many feel the new design is not really better, and I did notice there are many design details missed, like spacing, use of color, choice of the font, etc. Not sure if it's a mediocre development or just design. I found it a little entertaining reading those reactions, trolling the new design mostly, but as a designer, I also feel bad for the team behind this. Uh, nervous sweat emoji. <laughs> Wonder what are you folks take and reaction on this update and what changes you would like to see or make. Okay, so let me start off with this, Brian. Yeah, okay, hit me. I work at YouTube, uh, which is part of Google. And so in, in order to avoid any sort of like conflict of interest, also people who worked on that might be listening to this. I will probably not say too much here. Um, okay. But... I think it's an interesting topic. People are certainly talking about it. I think it's an interesting topic. We're we're a few weeks late to the party, actually. Like this redesign started rolling out at the beginning of August. And so it's kind of settled for a little bit. We're we're late to this conversation, which I think is actually better because it's not necessarily a hot take. Like we've lived with this for a little bit. We saw the hot take wave come and go. But I'm happy to to talk about it. And you know, I feel like when we do these kinds of design critiques on the podcast, like, you know, I hope it's clear that our goal isn't to like shit on these things in the event that we don't like a particular design but ideally we can dissect things and like come away with some sort of analysis that feels like there's some sort of grounds in reason or logic or or like best design practices um so that people who are listening might one be entertained but two like maybe learn something and then also like maybe we just do the big caveat that obviously we don't work on this so we don't understand the full vision here or we don't understand how many designers worked on this or how many teams worked on this. And like, I'm sure there's people internally that aren't happy with what shipped. And I'm sure there's some people who see it and they see it in a different way than we see it. Or they were part of the process and they know what a Herculean effort it was just to get this out. So like, <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah. But that leads me to my first point, which is actually, I just want to call out another podcast to it. Think did a great analysis of this and that's uh kevin and rafa on the layout fm podcast so we'll point people there kevin rafa talked about this in their previous episode and i think kevin had the best insight which was that this feels like gmail taking its own try at wearing the new material you design yeah i think that's exactly what it is yeah and that is the reason that you end up with so many blues because in material you the idea the like central theme of that language is color sampling you have primary interface colors that are probably sampled from whatever like your wallpaper and that leads to all these variants of that color that get used for different interface elements and the idea is that hopefully over time that feels harmonious and like feels connected to the personalization that you brought to the platform and device so when when you bring that to the web it feels disconnected from the spirit of that, right? Because on the web, you're probably viewing this in a browser that might not allow that kind of customization or 
or Gmail doesn't understand how you might have customized your browser or more broadly your your desktop, right? So it's not like Gmail can sample from your desktop wallpaper and it can't sample from other elements in your browser. So they just picked this blue, right, as like the stock and you end up with all these different shades of blue. And so it just feels like the wrong context to display the idea behind material you. I think that was the critique and I, I think I agree with that. What do you think? Yeah, I um, maybe the one thing that I will say and uh, kind of struck me as weird that so many people were talking about it is like, I guess it's all basically visual, right? Because stuff didn't move. I find myself as I'm using Gmail throughout the day, when I go to click on a button, it's where I thought it was. You know, when I hit a keyboard shortcut, it's the same, pretty much the IA is exactly the same as it was before. It's just like a slightly different coat of paint on it. So like, I don't find myself having any usability issues from the standpoint of they moved my cheese, you know? Mm -hmm. It's mostly just like a color contrast thing. Yeah, I mean, they haven't fundamentally changed, which I think is one of the reasons that people were reacting so strongly to this rollout is if you're just going to apply a new coat of paint, presumably that new coat of paint should be better. And it feels, I think, to a lot of people and to me, like a step backwards. And one of the ways that it's, a, actually there's two main ways that it's a step backwards for me. One is there's just no contrast on things like the search input and then also on sort of like the main list content area, the white and the the gray background. And then if you have a email that is red, it also gets sort of a, a light gray, bluish tint background. And those those things just all muddy together and there's not clear bounds of where the sections start and end. The input, for example, for the search is barely, barely darker than the background that it's sitting on. And I think for me, like it was surprising because Google and Material in general has been such a historical advocate for things like shadow to create depth and to layer on elements and convey a sense of sort of elevated hierarchy. Mm, I think that went away. And I did away with all yeah, of that. Yeah. And now it's just flat with very low contrast blues. So that's my first big critique. And then the second is the blues that they did end up with are off palette, right? It's very clear to see the compose blue and the inbox highlighted blue in the left sidebar are not from, uh, sorry, I'm going to be a bad designer here. I don't know the correct term, the, the right tone of blue, the right hue of blue. Hue, yeah. Hue is the, the rainbow strip. Yeah, that's hue. Okay. So from like a visual design sensibility, it just feels like a mistake, but but again, let's bring it back to this idea of material U is like there's probably a world where that color is actually mistaken, will get fixed and they'll end up in the same family. And, it, and the reason I believe that to be true is because if you look over in the, you can open the quick settings in the new Gmail, and there's a section for theme and there's only one theme. It's just this one blue one. And I think that's where we're going to see all the other colors coming in. You'll have green, red, orange, maybe you'll be able to pick your own color. And I got to imagine they're just ironing out the bugs and like whatever, supplying some primary color and generating a theme from that color. That's just like hard math and hard design to get correct. Like color sampling is notoriously tricky. So my hunch is it's a mistake. But anyways, to bring all that back, it's like, okay, well, if you're going to do a fresh coat of paint, like if this feels like a regressive coat of paint, I think that's why people were so emotional about it on Twitter. What do you think? Did anything I say there sound off to you? No, I, I think the hue thing is interesting. But it's also weird too, because like even in the sidebar, like the hover states of all these things are also all over the place, man. Like if you hover over the compose button, it gets this crazy drop shadow. 
and it's a gray drop shadow. So the shadow itself isn't sampling from the blue either. So you end up with this weird uh, like neutral gray, cold blue muddying effect. But then also the the actual separate sort of views. You have inbox, starred, snooze, sent. Like when you hover over each of those things, the hover state is, <sighs> it looks like a neutral gray, although I'm sure it's like slightly on the, the blue side of things. But it's neutral enough that it also feels muddy alongside the more saturated blue selected state. And then the hover states on everything else in the interface get more of like a round background color on, on the buttons. And then you just have this compose button that gets this like crazy drop shadow. <laughs> yeah, lifts up. Okay, here I can. I was looking through the Material 3 guidance. Okay. And I think I know why the compose button is a different hue, is because it's not using the primary color, it's using either the secondary or the tertiary color fill. So there's like a whole system of primary and then a background primaries go on and secondary and tertiary. My guess is that this is the yeah secondary or tertiary pivot off of the source blue color. I guess. <laughs> I guess. It just doesn't feel cohesive. It's so, I don't know. Critiquing Gmail is tricky because Gmail is just one of those web products that has at this point been around for, what, 15 years? And us mere mortals probably can't comprehend the complexity of what it takes to put this seemingly simple looking interface together. Technically, uh-huh. um, there's yep. got to just be a lot of stuff going on here. However, if I can still like continue on the critique, there's still a lot of like very common flows that really feel unconsidered in the sense that they like pull you out of the design language of Gmail overall. So I, I'm just sort of clicking around at a few things and like you can start to notice small inconsistencies, which is fine. There's inconsistencies everywhere. But like if you open the uh, the composer, you get this like composer window that opens from the bottom is like this little chat mole kind of thing. And it has like a pretty nice drop shadow actually. Like the drop shadow has some good contrast and it's like soft and everything like that. Then you go over and you go into the sidebar and click the plus button to create a new label. And it opens this dialogue with like the harshest, smallest drop shadow you can imagine. The dialogue has a 1x icon for the close button that's been scaled up to 2x, so it's blurry. There's two inputs on this view. The inputs are different widths. They're really, really small. Like they don't feel like they are in the same design language. So anyways, you just like hit these two things back to back. It's like, oh yeah, people are probably going to create a label and they're probably going to send an email. And like the language of those two things just feels worlds apart. Dusty corners. Dusty corners. Yeah. Man, this is why like design critique is so hard because I've made stuff that has equally dusty corners. Oh yeah. yeah. yeah, like the people, if anyone's listening to this, it works at Gmail. They're all like, like, fuck this guy. He thinks he's better. He's like, it's like, no, there's just a billion dialogues and stuff. But if we put that away, if we put away that very obvious caveat, Gmail's used by like 2 billion people. And there must be a lot of sign off that goes into these things. And then it ships and it just doesn't feel good um, or complete or polished, or even accessible in a lot of ways. Like I think this new label dialogue is really interesting because you can't even click on the scrim that appears behind it to close the dialogue. So there's just like really small things on, on like some primary UI that makes me feel like, I don't know, one, this is why I don't use Gmail. I use a third-party app because 
I just don't think this is something that I would want to look at all day. And then second, I don't know, maybe we'll see some incremental improvements over time as, you know, it's a web product that can ship daily and hopefully make this better over time. But uh, I don't know, how do we wrap this up? Maybe at a high level, I think this is like an interesting look at material U principles or ideas coming to the web. And maybe it'll grow on me, but right now, if it ends up looking and feeling like this, like really low contrast, off hue accent colors for sibling elements, it feels like material you wasn't made for the web or maybe more broadly for desktop. Because when I look at material you on Android and on the phone, you can see how the color maps to like some underlying user input or customization where you're like thematically, this is correct. Like I can see how that's personalized. Whereas here in this world on this surface, it just feels disjointed. So I guess that's my answer to the listener question. <laughs> Thanks for asking it. <laughs> Thanks, Will. Uh, yeah, for people listening, let us know what you think. Like, what did we miss? Were we too harsh? Like, what are what, what should we maybe reconsider with the Gmail design? And if anyone works at Gmail on this, we'd love to hear from you. So tweet at us. Like, if you, if you have thoughts or maybe like design lessons we could learn from or like uh, explanation of how material you is going to work. I, I think the design community could learn from that because right now the people sort of, I don't know, dunking on this on Twitter, like don't get a response that is very thoughtful. And I don't think it's adding much to the conversation. So anyways, would love to learn more and hear other reactions. So tweet at us as always. Cool. Do, 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 do. Okay. Do, 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 do. We got some jobs. Y'all, we got some good jobs, some really good jobs. Let's kick it off. Fig Jam. Figma is looking for designers to help shape the future of Fig Jam. And they have a few open roles right now. Focus on everything from the core product and meeting experiences to onboarding, user education, and templates. So if you want to work on Fig Jam, click the link in the show notes and uh, go work at Figma and make, make good stuff for the rest of us, you know? All right. We also have Patreon. To build the future of the creative economy, Patreon is looking for product designers at all levels to solve the needs of creators and members on their platform. Their roles are based in San Francisco and New York. So that's Patreon. Check them out. I got to give a, a quick shout out to our friends over at Patreon because they have been steadily rolling out a m- 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 massive redesign to the entire web interface of Patreon. So if you haven't looked at Patreon in a little while, go click around. Like literally redoing everything. But the biggest thing that you'll notice is they fixed navigation. And when I say fixed, I mean particularly fixed it for creators, for people like you and me, Marshall, who who might have both sort of this creator side view of Patreon where we want to manage design details, but then you and I also are patrons to other creators. In the previous world, that navigation problem was very, very messy, and now it is not. So props to our friends over at Patreon. The third open job on our list is Notion. Notion says to close your eyes and imagine in the 1970s, thinking through how computing should be like. That's what Notion is trying to build. Beautiful software that fits everyone's needs. They have infinite challenges that can only be solved by someone with innate product sense, technical aptitude, great taste, and impeccable craft. Thank you, Notion. And lastly, we have Raycast. Raycast makes it simple, fast, and delightful to control your tools. And they're looking for an experienced individual to join their small team to redesign and improve core app functionality, tools to enable developers to create new extensions, and rethink components across the platform. So that's Raycast. Thanks to all the companies in our job board today. Do-do-do-do. Love it. Love it. Great companies. Thanks, everyone. 
click the links in the show notes to, to check out those jobs and apply, apply. They're looking for good people. All right, cool things. Marshall, th- this cool thing needs a little bit of context setting. Um, I'm late to the party in discovering this wonderful, wonderful human being named Nathan Fielder. Uh-huh. Have you heard of Nathan Fielder? I have, yeah. Okay, so for people who haven't, Nathan Fielder is a Canadian comedian who graduated from a top business school in Canada with really good grades. And he has this show. Well, he's been he's been on TV for a long time. It started out on a Canadian comedy show. And then anyways, he got a Comedy Central show called Nathan For You. And Nathan For You is Nathan going to small business owners and helping them improve their business. But it's a comedy show. So what's what's funny about it? Well, Nathan is perhaps one of the driest comedians in the world like his sense of humor is just incredibly monotone flat and dry but also incredibly creative and over the top like every solution to some small business problem is the most buck wild possible conclusion you could ever come to thinking about like ways to actually solve that particular problem anyways i one day got a nathan for you clip in my youtube feed and then you know you watch that and then all of a sudden you have a million of those clips in your your feed. And so I went down this rabbit hole and then lo and behold, well, actually, now I can see how all the dots connect. Lo and behold, he comes out with a new show recently on HBO called The Rehearsal. Marshall, have you watched The Rehearsal? Nope. Okay. The Rehearsal is a masterpiece. <laughs> uh-huh. It is perhaps one of the finest pieces of television I've ever watched. And I'm not even done. At the time of recording this, there's six episodes total. I have watched five. If I have time after this recording, I will watch the last. But even the first five, it's actually, it's it starts out feeling like Nathan for you. It starts out being like, ah, yeah, this is going to be that kind of humor. But it very quickly becomes more profound and thoughtful and philosophical and deep and human. And over the last five episodes, I actually view Nathan Fielder in a very different, different way like his persona on Nathan for you was very distanced from the subjects but in the rehearsal it's the opposite like he actually unveils his human side a little bit more like he comes across less like a automaton robot I mean he still has some of those qualities but like there's just something different so anyways this long rambly monologue to recommend the rehearsal If you have not watched it, go on HBO, and what you have to do is you have to watch the first two episodes. The first episode is kind of standalone, but it cues up what becomes episodes two, three, four, and five, and so if you, and six. So if you watch episode one and then watch episode two, you should have a sense of if you're in or not. And if you're in for episode two, the storyline will will continue through into three, four, five, and six. And I think it is incredible. By episode four and five, He's doing some of the most insane production ever for a TV show. And he'll queue up these things that must have literally taken weeks or months of prep. And it'll get like a 30 second call out in the show. Like that's how much work went into this thing. And uh, it's a masterpiece. I'll stop being so effusive. I think you should watch it, Marshall. I know this isn't your kind of thing, but I think you should watch it. Yeah, man. You know, I'm not good with (laughs) cringe. Empathetic discomfort I don't handle well. It's not as much of that. What I, I can see why you would be allergic to Nathan for you, but this is slightly different 
and slightly different enough that I think you would maybe have a different reaction to it, especially if you get to episode two. There is still lots of cringy stuff and people who say really horrible, cringy things. But again, it just feels different. Just watch the first episode. Just watch. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Virginia loves this shit. She loves Nathan for you. So it will not be any sort of arm twisting necessary to get her to watch this. It's my, it's me. It's, it's me. Okay. All right. Anyways, I took a long time on that cool thing. Um, how about you go? All right, I'll do a short one. Um, Brian, I have chewed my fingernails since I was seven years old, and I tried to kick it a bunch of different times. Haven't been able to. I remember when I was a kid, my mom bought this like spicy, like nail polish stuff. I just developed a tolerance for that spice. So I'm always embarrassed by my my nubby fingernails. But I got this thing. It's called Strong Will by Nail Quail. It basically looks like a marker. It's got a little click button on the butt of the marker, a little screw-off cap with a brush tip, and you just apply this clear, non-scented liquid to your fingernails. It doesn't leave behind a residue. like It's not like a nail polish or something where there's like a layer. It just makes your fingers taste like bile. It's the worst fucking taste I've ever had in my mouth. Even like... You know, I, I've made the mistake of like you know, a dog hair will get in my mouth. So I go to pick out the dog hair. Oh my God, it's the worst fucking taste I've ever had. And my fingernails are growing back, Brian. It's crazy. It fucking works. <laughs> so all this to say, Genius. if you bite your fingernails and you're having trouble with it, I'll put a link in the show notes to this thing. It's just, I, I'm not sure. It's like 10 bucks or something. It's just like a little pen of bitter bile tasting bullshit that you put on your fingernails. I'll tell you what, it keeps you from putting them in your mouth. I guarantee it. Bitter bile bullshit mm-hmm. cool Ugh. cool question mark thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> hopefully there's somebody out there who this will help because it's helped me and i've tried everything so that's awesome well i'm happy it's helping you break the habit man cool things cool thing. plural cool thing. well all right this has been episode 446 of the design details podcast we hope you enjoyed listening as always tweet at us we love hearing from you if you have a topic you want us to discuss in a future episode you can always dm us to ask that anonymously or you can uh Go to our githubs, github.com slash design details slash design details, open an issue, leave us some juicy topics to talk about in the future. We appreciate all of you who do. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more and also want to support us at the same time, but mostly if you want to hear us talk some more, <laughs> uh, head to patreon.com slash design details, where for just a buck a month, just a buck a month, just a buck a month, you can get access to bonus content. We call it the sidebar. Sidebar, sidebar. So thank you to everyone who joined the fam this week. We hope to catch more of you in the sidebar. Uh, once again, that's at patreon.com slash design details. Okay, that's it. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Yeah. Is that emoji nervous sweat? That's how I always read it as like um, nervous laughter of like, (laughs) one of those. Oh my God. What did you think it was? I use that emoji a lot. Oh no. I I view it as just more like, not what you just said. I don't know. Like more, more like a more playful. Like uh, this is making me laugh in such a way that maybe I am like, 
glowing red with like warmth, you know? Oh. 